In 1907, the Trenton Times newspaper reported on a strange and tragic occurrence involving one Albert Allen of Chicago and his wife, who was found dead of a gunshot wound. A gunshot wound from Albert Allen's gun. Now, if you've ever read a detective novel or watched an episode of Law & Order, you know that when investigating a suspect for homicide, you're looking for three things. The means, motive, and opportunity. Albert Allen certainly had the opportunity. He and his wife lived together, naturally, and she was shot while she slept. He had the means because he owned a gun. But did he have a motive? Well, possibly. And while we don't have the details of their life together, he denied any of the common motives in cases like this, like a fit of rage, or jealousy, or attempting to collect on a life insurance policy. No, Albert Allen made a rather unusual claim. The mince pies made him do it. The newspaper quoted him as saying, I ate three pieces of mince pie at 11 o'clock and got to dreaming that I was shaking dice. The other fellow was cheating and I tried to shoot his fingers off. When I awoke, I was holding a pistol in my hand and my wife was shot. Now, I have a feeling that old Albert Allen was making an excuse and an absurdly flimsy one at that. But what's surprising to anyone listening nowadays is that blaming mince pies was something that anyone would even think to try back in 1907. And if you think that's surprising, well, we are just getting warmed up. Because the mince pie is one of the least understood, most maligned, and sometimes subversive Christmas traditions we have. And yet, it's still here. With its pastry crust and spiced and often boozy fruit filling, it's a survivor. And its story touches on hallucinogens, prohibition, food preservation, the Puritans, and a Christmas dessert with a bad boy reputation. A dessert that's as American as, well, as American as mince pie. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. There's a poem from 1573 that describes the ideal Christmas dinner. And in it, the poet refers to shred pie. These were made of various kinds of shredded meat and included dried fruit like currants, raisins, and dates, as well as spices. But of course, these shred pies, which were also sometimes known as mutton pies and would later be renamed mince pies, didn't start out as strictly Christmas fare. I mean, if, we, if we're talking about mince pies, the general idea of mince pies being sort of a sweet, fruity, kind of boozy sometimes, um, maybe a bit of meat at the beginning mixed in, you know, that idea is pretty old definitely predates the association of mince pies with Christmas. That's Nikki Greenwood, a journalist who's written about mince pies for the BBC. By the time you get to Samuel Pepys's era, so just after the interregnum, mince pies do seem to be a sort of winter thing, and they tend to fall in December and January. And, of course, the transformations from everyday pie to Christmas pie, as well as the rebranding from shred pie to mince pie, aren't the most dramatic changes in its evolution. It is striking, right, that you all the recipes at the beginning are very like you take your ground meat and you take ground up eggs, it's full of meat. What we have now, there's no meat. To understand how this happened, you need to forget what you know about pies for a moment. Nowadays, we have our two basic kinds, sweet and savory. They're either filled with some kind of fruit or custard or meat. 
They're usually wide and shallow and have some kind of pastry crust on the bottom, and sometimes, but not always, a crust on top too. And nowadays, the crust and the spices and the flavoring are all meant to be part of the texture and flavor. But all of that is comparatively new. If you're interested in reading old cookbooks, you eventually start to notice all these recipes for things that they're, you know, they're calling pies. The crust doesn't sound all that good. You know, it's just water and flour, and, and eventually maybe there's some lard. But it becomes clear that initially pie crusts were thought of as a preservation tool. You would make this thick layer um, of dough, and you know, you'd line a, a pan, and then you would fill it with something, usually meat, and then you would bake it until it was hard, and you would pour in through the, a steam hole that you had cut in the top crust some liquid fat. And when it solidified, well, I mean, that was airtight. Dried fruits and spices were as much about preservation as they were about flavor. And they were the go-to until another commodity with similar preservative qualities became much cheaper and more widely available, sugar. And from there, the meat was gradually phased out in favor of a purely dessert-like spiced fruit pie. By 1747, which is when Hannah Glass wrote The Art of Cookery, which is a really useful tool if you're looking to understand English cookery, the evolution of English cookery, she describes how to make a mince pie, and she doesn't actually mention meat until the end. She says you can, you take currants, raisins, suet, sugar, lemon, orange peel, red wine, you know, you make this, this mixture. And then she says, if you choose meat in your pies, parboil a neat's tongue, peel it and chop the meat as fine as possible. You don't have to put meat in this pie. It can just be sweet. By 1861, Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management, which is another really useful source, has a sweet meat-free recipe and a meat recipe. You can choose which one you want. 20 years later, by the Victorian era, you know, it was kind of uniformly sweet. The fact that mince pies made it into a 1747 cookbook is something of an achievement in itself. Or at least that's a popular interpretation of events, because back in the previous centuries, when England was under Oliver Cromwell's puritanical government, all things Christmas were quashed. Christmas celebrations were closely associated with popery in the Catholic Church, as far as the Puritans were concerned. And maybe you've even heard the common assertion that mince pies in particular were made illegal. There's quite a lot of pretty fanciful articles and blog posts out there saying that, um, you know, mince pies were made illegal during the time of Oliver Cromwell. And, you know, those laws have never been repealed, and so mince pies are technically illegal. But that's actually, you know, the more I read and the more I actually tried to figure out, okay, but which laws are we talking about, the more I realized uh, that's not true. What is true is that the Puritans were pretty anti-Christmas, but they didn't actually make mince pies illegal. That appears to date from some later works, basically, where uh, people who had an incentive to paint the Puritans as kind of ridiculous. But plenty of people would ridicule mince pies, too. That would happen here in America in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Here's the interesting thing. Before apple pie was considered the one true American pie, mince pie held that title. It was eaten during the holiday season, of course, but also year-round and was part of the national identity. According to some, developing a taste for mince pie was proof of assimilation to American culture for immigrants. It was a morale booster and a comforting taste of home sent to American expeditionary forces in World War I. And its popularity and longevity are surprising given that it was commonly thought to cause severe indigestion, hallucinations, and vivid nightmares. 
In an issue of the Women's Home Companion, one article states that, quote, positively no stomach can digest mince pie without injury and no intelligent woman in these enlightened times serves it to her family. There were newspaper cartoon strips mocking mince pies, sermons describing them as, quote, very white and indigestible upon the top, very moist and indigestible at the bottom, with untold horrors in between. There were recommendations to eat sand from the shores of Lake Michigan to prepare the stomach for eating them. It goes on and on, and it probably by now helps you to understand why Albert Allen would say the strange effects of eating mince pie were to blame for him shooting his wife. We had a love-hate relationship with mince pie here in America, but that pendulum swung more toward love in 1919 because of a little thing known as prohibition. During prohibition, a time, of course, when many people were looking for ways to get alcohol in ways that weren't technically illegal, canned mince pie filling was a good candidate. Uh, the canned mince pie samples had an alcohol content of 14.12%. Which, that's basically the same as wine. If you ate a can of this pie filling, you probably feel pretty buzzed. And here we are about a century later. The phrase, American is apple pie, caught on sometime in the 1940s, and mince pie was demoted to a seasonal dessert, and a second-tier one at that. Today, they're much more popular in England, Australia, and New Zealand. In the States, they've by and large fallen into the same category as fruitcake, which is to say, an acquired taste. But, love it or hate it, mince pie is intricately woven into food history, American history, and Christmas history. You know what else is part of Christmas history? Churches putting on church pageants. And that's the topic of this episode's Christmas Memory. If you've been following the season so far, you'll know that the Christmas memories are going to work just a bit different this year, and that's because I'm recording most of these episodes in the summer, when it's still too early to ask you to send them. And I'm doing that because come November, we'll be welcoming a new member to the Christmas Past family and to the household here at Christmas Past headquarters. So in many of these episodes, like this one, the Christmas memories you'll hear will be from yours truly. But I want you to hear me loud and clear, I still want to include your Christmas memories later this season. There's still time to send them, and there's still a place to include them in the episodes that arrive closer to Christmas Day. So, as always, the thing to do is record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Just keep it reasonably short, clean and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. Now, the year of my very first Christmas, I appeared in a Christmas pageant at the First United Methodist Church, the church that my mother's family attended in Stoughton, Massachusetts. My birthday is in May, so come December, I was just the right age to play the part of Baby Jesus in the church's Christmas pageant. There is a picture tucked away in a photo album somewhere of me wearing swaddling clothes and held in the arms of a teenaged girl dressed as Mary and surrounded by a scene with hay spread on the floor and a manger in the foreground and other props made to set the scene of a stable behind an inn in Bethlehem. Now this itself isn't a Christmas memory, not for me anyway, because I was too young to remember it. But I attended those church pageants every year throughout my childhood and teens. There would be singing, pipe organ music, candlelight, and at the end, everyone got a candy cane. But the pageant was the main attraction. It was acted out mostly by kids and teens from the church, and on at least one occasion that I remember, it included live animals. Right there on the altar of the church, goats and sheep and maybe a donkey, but I'm not sure. 
I have no idea where the animals came from, if they were from a congregant's farm or brought in from a petting zoo, but one thing's for sure, animals can be unpredictable. You can't always control when they'll decide to wander around or make noises, nor can you control their bodily functions. I'll spare you the full description and just say that by the end of the pageant, hay wasn't the only thing spread around the floor. What I remember most about that year's pageant was a packed room of adult congregants doing their best to suppress giggles as the younger ones pointed and shouted, and the performers, the human ones I mean, did their best to remain composed and dignified and carry the story to its conclusion. Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California by yours truly, Brian Earl. Thanks so much to Nikki Greenwood, and thank you for being part of the Christmas Past family. I'm doing my part to grow the Christmas Past family. How about you? Telling a friend about this show or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts are quick and simple ways to show your support, and they really do make a big difference. It's like spreading Christmas cheer. And if you do leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I'll send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card to say thanks. Reach out for details on that. Again, you can reach me anytime at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com or connect on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And do join that private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet, for we're celebrating all season and beyond. And visit christmaspast.media for additional Christmas fun like articles, quizzes, infographics, and more. I hope your Christmas season is going wonderful so far, and I'm looking forward to spending all of it with you together, all the way up till Christmas Day. So until we meet again, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright. <laughs>